Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We recently released bonus episodes on Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid and the fourth and final season of Succession. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tasha Robinson. Scott Tobias. And Genevieve Kosky. This week, we'll be talking about two different coming-of-age stories about middle school-age girls. So, naturally, hosting duties have fallen to me. While others talk, I'll be doodling the names of my crush in a notebook and dotting the eyes with hearts. That's what it's like, right, Tasha? Genevieve? Mm, okay. Okay. Well, presumably I'll gain some insight of the experience over the course of these episodes. Uh, our films offer somewhat contrasting visions of early adolescence. Tasha, can you tell us about them? Sure. Author Judy Bloom has been reluctant to allow her books to be adapted to film. The only previous film adaptation of one of her classic novels is the little scene 2012 film Tiger Eyes, directed by Bloom's son, Lawrence Bloom. That makes the arrival of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, all the more notable. We all enjoyed and wanted to talk about the film, and when we considered pairings, we quickly thought of Todd Solon's 1995 film Welcome to the Dollhouse, another coming-of-age story set in the New Jersey suburbs, albeit one with a markedly different tone. The heroines of each of these movies undergo a rocky journey through middle school, though one is considerably rockier than the other. So this week, we'll flash back a little bit to the mid-90s for a hellish vision of suburban life and a confused heroine trying to navigate some unfriendly new territory. Then we'll pop open some cans of Tab and journey back to 1970 for a gentler take on the same subject via the story of a girl wondering about God, boys, bodies, and other topics. Don, let me put it to you straight. We're not here to get you. You've got to understand, you're in junior high now. This goes in the computer, on your record. Hey, Gina, what are you looking at? Nothing. You didn't come in here to wash your hands. Yes, I did. Hi, Dawn. We were just wondering, are you a lesbian? (laughs) Brandon, I can't be your girlfriend. I'm in love with someone else. Who? Steve Rogers. In high school. Who's Steve Rogers? Well, Steve Rogers is only like one of the most popular guys in class. Steve, Steve, you will fall in love with me. You will take me away from this place. Dawn, for you. I'm thinking of using this one for my first album cover. Oh, Steve, they're all so beautiful. You better get ready. Steve! I have to talk to you. Well, Steve is horny. How horny? He'd go out with anyone as long as it was a girl and willing. You mean... Welcome to the Dollhouse wastes little time putting viewers in the fretful mindset of its protagonist, Don Wiener, played by Heather Matarazzo, a bespectacled middle school girl unable to hide the mix of a confusion and frustration that's come to define her existence. The second film, written and directed by Todd Silence, Dollhouse introduces Don wandering her school's lunchroom looking for a friendly place to sit and finding no promising options. 
It has the feel of a nightmare, but captures a feeling common to anyone who's found themselves without an obvious place to fit in amidst a sea of buzzing classmates who all seem happier and better adjusted. When Don does take a seat, she's immediately tormented with the probably made up news that someone had recently barfed in that spot. Before a gaggle of popular girls demands to know the truth of her sexuality, Don's defaced locker, the graffiti makes prominent use of the taunting nickname Wiener Dog, reveals that this abuse has been going on for a while, and it only gets worse over the course of the film, particularly once a tough kid named Brandon, played by Brendan Sexton III, puts her in his crosshairs and threatens to rape her. Though his feelings for Don seem to be more complicated than that threat suggests. Don's teachers not only do little to help her, they do little to hide how much they dislike her home, where her parents largely ignore Don in favor of her more enduring younger sister Missy, is a little better, apart from the occasional visit from the dreamy Steve Rogers, played by Eric Mobius, an older boy who's in Don's brother's band and employing him as a tutor. Steve's presence and Brandon's attention, however threatening, stirs something in Don. But she finds no healthy outlet for her new feelings, just impulses that lead to a lot of questionable choices, whether it's asking another girl about Steve's love life or attempting to dig in and prevent her parents from destroying the ramshackle clubhouse that's home to her special people club. It has just one other member, a sweet younger boy named Ralphie, who follows Don around like a gosling. Welcome to the Dollhouse became an indie hit after playing Sundance in 1996. It introduced moviegoers to Solins' unrelentingly bleak, humored view of the world and his commitment to inspiring empathy for often unlikable characters. Don is very much a victim of bullying, but she also becomes a channel for it. Given the possibility of a slight escalation in her social status, she sells Rusty out, even calling him by the F-slur, like the bullies who taunt her. Watching Don make one dubious decision after another is maddening, whether that's cooperating with Brandon's threat by meeting him at an agreed time for a scheduled rape, or withholding a note that would have prevented Missy's kidnapping. It's hard not to feel pity for her, and just as hard not to mix that pity with other, less charitable emotions. The film was hailed at the time for its realism at capturing the realities of junior high life. Here's Roger Ebert, quote, Welcome to the Dollhouse remembers with brutal and unforgiving accuracy the hell of junior high school. Many movies reconstruct those years as a sort of adolescent paradise. It's a shock watching this film to remember how cruel kids can be to one another and how deeply the wounds cut. As the years have gone by and Silence's filmography has grown, some have seen it differently. As our friend Josh Larson put it in his retrospective review of the film, quote, Is Don a joke meant to make a snicker? Writer-director Todd Silence has come under the same scrutiny as Alexander Payne and the Coen brothers in terms of how their movies treat their characters, unquote. Larson, who liked the film, is inclined to give Dollhouse a pass, citing the delicate way Silence forces viewers to keep, quote, one foot in Don's head while keeping the other in the real world, unquote. There's a power in finding that balance, in not hiding Don's flaws, but also depicting the unfairness of the world that created them. With Welcome to the Dollhouse, Solins frequently captures the feeling of reminiscing about adolescent mistakes with adult clarity, a finding that the passing of time has led to a better understanding of what it all meant and how many mistakes could have been avoided. The film is deeply uncomfortable and morally murky, but how could it be anything else? Now, what exactly did you do, Don? I shot a spitball. Speak up, I can't hear you. I shot a spitball. You shot a what? She shot a spitball. A teacher was almost blinded. I was fighting back. Who ever told you to fight back? Don, 
Are you having social problems? No. Yes. She's a loner. Don, let me put it to you straight. We're not here to get you. But you've got to understand, you're in junior high now. This goes in the computer, on your record. Another couple of years and this kind of incident goes on your college transcript. Any questions? So I was skeptical of this film when I first saw it in 1996 because I felt it kind of stacks the decks against Don at every turn. And when I watched it again, I, I think it kind of stacks, stacks the decks against Don at every turn, but it was also a lot more complex and funnier than I'd, I'd remembered it being. How was everybody else's experience watching this film? I think I don't think it's the first time for anybody, right? No. No, I, I saw it for the first time when I was probably way too young to see it. I am. It came out when I was the exact same age as Dawn is in this movie. So I, I, I think I probably saw it a few years later. Uh, like I know it was like a blockbuster night rental. Mm. <laughs> but um, I, I was definitely probably shouldn't have been watching an R movie on my own. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure why I was, you know, latchkey kid life. And I haven't watched it again since then. And you know, in the decades since, I've just always had an association with this movie making me deeply uncomfortable when I watched it before, as you kind of say in the in the keynote, Keith. And I was, and I didn't have that reaction this time. Like like you, I kind of found it funnier, and it, it went down a little easier while still, again, being an uncomfortable film. But I was thinking about like why I had such kind of negative associations with it, and I think this was probably one of my like first real exposures to a quote unquote unlikable protagonist mm. and in particular one who was very close to my own experience in terms of just like life stage. I certainly wasn't bullied to the extent that Dawn was, but revisiting it, like, you know, it's a funny film and like we feel sympathy for Dawn, but she's not necessarily a likable person. You know, she's sort of like pretty much everyone in this movie, kind of a personification of the old adage, you know, hurt people hurt people. And there's a lot of sort of just passing on of that bullying to other other people in her life, you know, and as an adult, I can kind of read that more sympathetically. But I think, you know, watching it as a early teen, when I probably shouldn't have been, it really kind of maybe messed with my head a little. <laughs> I mean, I'm 100 years older than Genevieve. So uh, I, I cannot duplicate that experience in terms of Dawn being particularly close to my own age when I saw this movie when it first came out. But uh, boy, I think my skin has gotten softer in the interim, or maybe I just have whatever the opposite of compassion fatigue is. I found this film so squirmy and and uncomfortable and, and borderline intolerable when I first saw it. And I think exactly the same today, <laughs> except with the capacity to pause it and walk away and do something else, which I did pretty frequently. <laughs> It's a really uncomfortable film. And one of the reasons it's so uncomfortable is because just over and over and over and again, you like you watch Dawn walk into and like lean into her own bullying. There's a lot of tropes I think we kind of associate with uh, the bullied kid in school syndrome. And uh, like a lot of them are like, this is in this is in some way an innocent or an endearing kid who's being hurt, whereas she is she's so belligerent, mm -hmm. and at the same time she's so awkward that she kind of invites some of what's being done to her. Like obviously, not on the level of physical abuse, not on the level of God the the graffiti on her locker, 
But when she gets into a situation with other kids and like won't back down and is uh She's a tattletale. <laughs> yeah, she's she's a tattletale and, and a whiner and as one teacher who's maybe my least favorite character oh, in this entire thing, uh, <laughs> says a grade grubber. And that sense that she's hurting people because she's hurting herself, I think is maybe one of the best observed things in this movie. But there's so many incredibly well observed things in this movie. But watching it again, I think maybe the only difference for me is that I was a lot more alert to the adults in this film and how completely useless they are in terms of either noticing what's going on with her or intervening in any meaningful way. And I think that there's a truth to that. But, you know, as, as Keith says, this movie really stacks the decks in terms of tiny little petty t- tyrannies and tiny little petty injustices that pile up against her until it becomes almost ridiculous, like almost satirical in a way so i can see the humor of that but i have a really hard time feeling it because this movie is just so cruel so much of the time (laughs) um yeah so i saw welcome to the dollhouse when it came out and uh and i and i uh remember having a quite of a quite a negative reaction at the time uh i remember finding it kind of hateful (laughs) but revisiting it i've really softened quite a lot on it and and I will find find the qualities that I rejected back at the time to be its best qualities. I mean, I, I like that it's that it's got a, that edge to it. I like that it, it seems to dislike Missy as much as Don does. You know, like <laughs> it, it 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 has you know its misanthropy is kind of um, refreshing and and honest and uh, you know it's it's so well observed in terms of. Uh, you know, I mean, it's got a kind of a kind of a satirical streak to it, I suppose. Everything's a little bit broader and bigger than it would be. I, I, you know, obviously, it's not naturalistic in its way, but it but it really feels like it understands this Jersey suburban life, uh, you know, the enclave really well. And Dawn's just a fascinating protagonist. Is somebody because she is unlikable because there's nothing particularly special about her i mean a lot of times when you have a character in a movie like this who's bullied it's you know they have they also have you know a secret drawing talent or they're good writers or they're particularly sensitive or you can kind of imagine them you know as you know grown up sort of transcending all of this or or there's are they're pitiable and so there's just something interesting about how dawn is not particularly remarkable and she's kind of could take the bullying that's been done to her and apply it to people who are 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 even weaker in a weaker position than even she is i think all that's just fascinating and gives a film uh makes the film feel you know gives it an edge and uh and it feels i think kind of true to the experience of 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 kid like this i think the edge is kind of key to what makes it work too i'd forgotten just how harsh it was i'd forgotten about the rape threat the repeated mm-hmm. rape threat i'd forgotten about the the, the knife that, that accompanies yeah. that rape threat and, and it's really ugly but i also find that brandon kid really fascinating because he's so obviously just roiling with all these conflicting emotions and his feelings about don are so so twisted up and 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 uh you know this is the only way you can express his interest in her i guess because he's he's such a 
such damaged goods himself. I mean, it is it's a it's a fascinating film. I, I don't think I give it enough credit. I mean, I'm kind of I'm sure we'll touch on some of Solid's other films at some point. I was kind of been up and down over him over the years, but I'm I'm feeling more up than ever after after watching this because like this is a really kind of a complete hellish vision. Um <laughs> and it's misanthropic, but I think there it's not misanthropic for its own sake i think it sort of arises as misanthropy through careful contemplation of how awful kids can be to each other and adults too i think as far as the rape threat goes like that's one of the things i've never forgotten about this film that made it stand out for me and thinking about it again this time i think one of the reasons that this is my favorite solens film i think in a walk is that whole rape plot line. It really captures something about how kids in America are exposed to sexual terms and sexual ideas like way before they can understand them. And they weaponize them and use them and, and in some cases pretend to understand them. I mean, I remember from my own middle school experience, like listening to other kids that were, were barely in their teen years, casually talking about sex in a way that made it very clear they were lying. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's, that's part of what stood out to me here. But at the same time, because Solens was such a new talent and because there's so much just really surprising ugliness in this film, when I first saw it, I, I thought it was entirely possible that she could be raped. Heather Matarazzo has has talked about the fact that there was an earlier draft of the movie where she he did, in fact, rape her. The fact that so much of this movie is so dark uh, means that it has a threat that I think a lot of his later films don't have. I revisited uh, Wiener Dog, the sort of spiritual slash actual sequel uh, to this movie that that does feature Brandon and Don meeting again later in life. And it's just got such a, a soft, fuzzy, almost like Wes Andersonian, like gentle quirk to it, while at the same time having some darkness. But But that th- sense of threat is gone. Here, when Dawn takes a hammer and holds it over her little sister's head while Missy is sleeping, like there really is a sense that she could just like in her her childish naivete and rage, she could actually hurt her sister. And that's a, a kind of threat and a kind of danger and a kind of fear I just don't feel in his later films. Wow, it's rare to like think about like Salon's films or later films not having feeling dangerous enough because god almighty like a movie like happiness is just you know loaded with pretty skeevy uh uncomfortable material sure but i mean happiness like even makes child molestation just sort of a a soft fuzzy suggestion of something that happens off screen there isn't anybody being threatened with rape in that movie it happens but it happens in a way where the victim barely seems to understand what happened and the perpetrator talks about it in a way that's heartbreaking, but it's not scary the way this movie mm. is. It's, it's mannered in a way. Okay. And it's, it's Frank, you know, he's, he's talked quite a lot about like what distinguishes his movies is he doesn't want to lie about how ugly people can be, but I don't know. Happiness feels like the darkest tea party imaginable, just like a very polite meal where everybody sits down and has finger sandwiches 
and <laughs> then molests kids off screen. So I haven't seen Happiness in a while. This is not, not for that movie, but but I think yeah. I, I think I get your I just, point though. There's a lot of it. There's, some of it is more build up and and aftermath than actual horrible events on screen. But, but what about the very? Fr- I mean, I don't want to relitigate Happiness, but yeah. what about yeah. this, the very beginning with uh, John Lovitz and Jane Adams? Right there, that that date where where he just kind of like unloads on her in public mm, it's like yeah it's so brutal anyway um <laughs> but <laughs> generally a point taken but it's very interesting to me that that you have that this re- that you have this reaction to to welcome to the dollhouse but um but feel like the his subsequent films are are, are softer by comparison i feel like feel like they've always they were always pretty pretty rough not softer necessarily just less explicit Less no, less immediate. Again, less scary. More about some in some cases like the intellectual side of doing or experiencing horrible things, and less about just the the really visceral emotional rawness of childhood. I think. So to steer us back to this film in in particular, I was I want to talk a little bit more about Don's likability, and it kind of occurred to me in a weird way a film in which she was more likable would be unbearable because it would just be a matter of watching an innocent uh, being tortured. Not that she's not an innocent per se, but but uh, watching someone vulnerable and, and, and pure of heart being tortured for 90 minutes is a different experience than this. What, what, what do you, uh, what do you think? I would not say fully that she is unlikable either. Mm-hmm. You know, there's kind of, it, it, she's in this sort of place where, where, where she, she acts out in ways that are, not right does not do the right thing quite a lot but you know we always understand how she's feeling and some of her desires are recognizable as well i mean all of the stuff involving her crush on steve rogers uh for example just feels you know i mean you, you kind of feel for her in, the, in those situations you can you can feel for her in her relationship to Brandon and, and um, in the way she kind of navigates that situation, which is strange and dangerous, but it, but involves, you know, quite a bit of compassion, you know, and thought on her, her part as well. So there's not, you know, she's, she's, she's a nice complex character. I, I I never really, I'm glad that she is where she is in terms of her likability. Cause I, I don't really feel like she, she's like, she's wholly likable or wholly unlikable. I think she's, you know, a little bit in between. Yeah, she'll, she's unformed, which like all of the characters, of the middle school characters are to to a certain extent. And there's still like the sense that it could go either way, <laughs> you know, for for them. Like none of them is wholly ruined yet, but also they've absorbed enough of the world and its cruelties to start mirroring some of that back to the people around them. And that's, I think, just kind of a a part of growing up and i think like the extent to which you know this very traumatic time in life molds you has to do with the the people around you and the i think the big thing contributing to dawn's like likability or lack thereof is the fact that no one around her is is likable um you know or or is "Quote unquote innocent," uh, the exception of maybe her her little friend. Um, what's what's his name? The sixth Ralphie. grader, Ralphie. Like, yeah, and, and I don't I don't think Ralphie really does any anything too detestable, right? Uh, no, he, 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 he does, also, He ends the movie just in such a bad 
place you know having yeah overheard don saying all these terrible things about him and i don't and we don't see him again do we i mean ralphie no. is what the movie would be if don were likable right ralphie yeah. is a, a sweet and soft soul who does nothing wrong in this movie and uh it ends up terribly wounded and you know we, we watch it happen on screen and it's very very cruel I think in the logic of of this film and perhaps silent films in general, he he's just he's too young to to be anything but 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 uh, innocent. Well, he's, yeah, he's, he's not in he's not in junior high yet, right? He's yeah. he he doesn't know yet. Although Missy isn't in junior high yet, and we True. see her do a handful of things that I would call pretty cruel, yeah, including pushing uh, Dawn into the the kiddie pool at the party. And not only, you know, tormenting her in that way, knowing full well that she can get away with it, that she's not going to be punished the way Dawn keeps getting punished. But then it's caught on camera. And when she sees it again, the entire family laughs and <laughs> Missy immediately says, let's watch that again. Like, <laughs> she's not she's not broken in the way a lot of these other kids are broken. It's a pretty innocent malice, but she's pretty malicious, too. Yeah. And the sibling dynamic i mean the whole family dynamic is really sour in a lot of ways but you know i was watching this with my husband who who has two brothers and and he said something a little like like it was during i think like the one of the dinner table scenes where they're all piling on dawn and he he made some comment like you you'll just never be able to relate to this on, <laughs> on the level that i'm relating to it you know and we do spend a lot of time in school but we spend almost as much time with dawn at home and her siblings are like pretty major characters and factors in her life which is very realistic for this point in a kid's life and there's just so much like you say, sort of malice ricocheting between them. I, I love think... Mark so much. Yeah. <laughs> if we talk, we're talking about the siblings, we talk a little about Missy, but I, I, Mark is just is is comic <laughs> gold every every time he opens his mouth. Uh, mostly, mostly to talk about how anything might affect his uh, college application, and, and you know, and of course, we can see with with Mark that he, I mean, he is he he is a bullied kid for sure. And, you know, as, as funny as it is to hear him talk about everything being good for his college application, he's looking ahead to that point. He's looking ahead to some point where his life is going to be less terrible uh, and that maybe there might be some sort of play, place for him because, uh, you know, uh, being actually being in high school, you know, that, that that's that's something he that's a place he needs to kind of transcend and get away from as well. Yeah, yeah, he's just looking forward to the escape. That's uh, he, everything is bent on an escape plan, which makes him just a more almost a more comfortable character to be around because, you know, he's not kinder, but he is he's he's got a little bark on him at this point. He's not just a an open vulnerable wound like so many of these characters. He's tensed up and and gritting his teeth and just like waiting it out, but he's also he's he's putting a plan in place for escape. I do think the ending or nearly ending the the film with his speech where he kind of tells it like it is like, no, eighth grade sucks. Uh, it's just as bad as seventh grade. High school's a little bit better. P people say horrible things to you, but not as not to your face as often. <laughs> and, you know, I think he's drawing from real experience there. Um, you know, it, it is. I mean, his last name is also Wiener. You know? It's true. It's true. <laughs> I mean, and he's not necessarily wrong about college being being an escape hatch for yeah. as, as it is for a lot of people. 
But at the same time, he's also like pursuing this band plan, which he says is a, you know, for a college application. But, you know, like a high school boy starting a band is always at least somewhat rooted in a desire for, for popularity or acceptance. You Are know, you talking or- about the quadratics? <laughs> I love I love that band so much. I know uh, 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 that for, that that first time we see them, and that doesn't sound like satisfaction. Is like pro- <laughs> I, I think that's great. like the first like laugh out loud line oh, of the so film good. for me. Yeah, and I mean it just and also I mean to get get more into the band stuff. I mean, yeah, you know, I guess the most famous shot of the film is uh, of Don dancing, and that dance is just still absolutely mesmerizing to watch i don't know how I, I i don't know the story behind it if anyone knows but like whatever that is you know hats off to her for that and i and i and i like the steve rogers character is fascinating to me too because he's you know he's not the type of guy he, he who wants to hang out with these nerds really but it kind of makes sense that 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 he's there anyway um the quadratics would would they desperately need him. <laughs> he, he has he has the, he has the musical and vocal skills uh, to make them a lot better than they they were without him. But um, but but all the stuff about him kind of struggling in school and you know his is the the uh, you know his relationship history I and mean, all that stuff is pretty pretty interestingly thought through for a character that that a director like Solans I think could just dismiss as kind of a shitty popular guy. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, Steve just kind of represents a a slightly older version of Dawn. You know, and when Dawn goes to Brandon after he's threatened to rape her, it just seems like what she's saying is, I will put up with any amount of abuse in, in, in exchange for attention, in exchange for anything that passes as affection. And Steve coming around to this band, like you can see where he's being bribed either with money or with uh, with help in school, but he doesn't seem to value school all that much. He, I think to some degree, he probably enjoys like having his own little like backing group that very clearly desperately needs him where he's like unquestionably the coolest person in the room. That's interesting, Tasha, that that you read him as a, a a version of Don because, like, I think I kind of always placed him within sort of the the threat matrix <laughs> that you were talking about earlier. Like, like he he just because he is so much older and so experienced, and Don is drawn to him, and he is very clearly like appreciative to the extent he can be of her attention it does feel like there's this veil of like tension or uh, fear of like where this might go. And it thankfully doesn't go there. But I think that's uh, always kind of how that character has registered to me as a a potential threat to Dawn, not a version of Dawn, but I see what you're saying. I I find that fascinating. I never registered him as any kind of physical or sexual threat to her Mm -hmm. because she's such a child compared to him. You know, Mm -hmm. she that that first night when he's he comes in to see Mark and she comes out in her shapeless footy pajamas. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, Heather, Heather was 11. The character's 11. But in that moment, she looks about nine. You know, she she just does not look like a sexual being. And I kind of love the way this film captures that sensation of like, she's starting to have urges, even though she just very clearly doesn't know much of anything about sex. She has a, a very vague and fuzzy idea of what she wants from Steve. But I think when she 
when she prays to the little altar she's made with his ID and tells him, you're going to make love to me. I don't believe that she has the, the vaguest idea what that is. And I think Steve sees her as a child, mm-hmm. like a friendly child who can... I don't even think there's anything predatory about it. Like, I, I just don't see him as like using her for fish sticks and praise. <laughs> I think he just doesn't really see her as a person. She's just sort of like background noise to his kind of like his own fantasies about his, his future uh, on the road as like a beloved band figure. And like, he's the fact that he's kind of kind to her to the degree where they're sitting around like looking at pictures of him and he's getting feedback and he chases Mark off when Mark tries to to throw him out. I just kind of see that as like, a slightly more easygoing kid who's become a little more comfortable in his own skin. He just, he doesn't read like, you know, popular boy who's a jerk to other people. And he he certainly doesn't read as somebody who could ever have an interest in Dawn. I think part of that reading comes from the fact that like this film very late on uh, after Steve is out of the picture, but it does introduce a, a sexual predator. Like I said, that happens after Steve. So it's not necessarily like, you know, any sort of like foreshadowing. But I think it's, it's maybe just the fact that that actor and that character just register so much older. And <laughs> even then Mark does like, like, that. that's an adult. That's not a high schooler. You, you know, Dawn interacting with Steve feels different than Dawn interacting with her brother, even though they are presumably the same age. There's some natural alarm bells that go off, but to be clear, like I'm very glad that's not how the how the film plays it. Uh, but I just I can't not kind of have that in the back of my head watching their scenes together. So you introduced the. Uh, uh, this is going to come out weird, but you introduced the threat, threat of pe- pedophilia to this conversation. Uh, well, someone had to. <laughs> it, I think the the biggest knock against this film traditionally has been the final act, which is is which is uh, Missy being kidnapped because of the note being you know I, it, conventional might be the right word or or kind of like a way to end the film versus a way that, that kind of logically ends the film. Did, did it play that mm-hmm. way for you guys? Yeah, kind of. I mean, yeah. it is, it's, it's a very crude device <laughs> uh, to, to kind of, because I mean, you have this film that is pretty observational is not really that interested in, in, in following any terribly muscular narrative track. And, and it needs to kind of come to find some sort of ending. And, and the one in engineers is exactly that it's engineered. It's, it's, uh, you know, a, a uh, kidnapping plot that's going to, that's going to going where, you know, Dawn is going to feel responsible uh, for something potentially terrible that has happened to her sister. And she's going to go to New York and try to figure these, these things out. I mean, it's, it's, it, it you know, and, and, and it feels like, you know a climax and an ending to a movie it feels like a way of ending the movie that doesn't mean it's not necessarily satisfying and there's something kind of is it an idea that that Solens is inter- introducing here with the conclusion that that it was kind of this this kind of creepy pedophile guy who who'd kidnapped her that he follows through on in, in subsequent films of just like the idea that you know that this conventional suburban space is just loaded with creeps <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. like they're like it's not a safe space that there are you know people lurking in these traditional two-story middle-class homes that are unsavory and and this is kind of the, the, the start of something that he would kind of follow through on in one movie after another yeah the fact that he didn't follow through on it here 
like I I can't say that I'm uh, sorry or, or offended or anything that uh, Missy doesn't get molested. But at the same time, it's a weirdly toothless ending for this movie in terms of what you know Keith was talking about from the beginning about everything just piling up against Dawn to a ridiculous degree, the idea that her little sister would get kidnapped and it would be it would be fun for her that she would enjoy it, you know, because absolutely nothing bad happened. And she also got her own TV and got to eat candy and McDonald's. And it was just, you know, a, a fun little time away. Where and then she like got to come back and and be on TV and and be celebrated like, whereas Dawn tries to do something to both get her parents' attention and to atone, and they arguably don't even notice and don't care. It just it just seems like too much. It it's just all- seems like putting the dramatic iron pushing the dramatic irony too far. Yeah, but it's almost like yeah, you're you're right. And, and but what a, it, it's almost like another knock another joke about Don in a way where it's like, you know, no matter what happens, nothing bad can happen to to her sister, you know? (laughs) Um, And instead, it's just another bad thing happening to her. I have a question about that whole plot, which is Missy. So Missy was in a neighbor's basement the whole time. So how did the tutu get in Times Square? Oh, yeah. Well, I feel like perhaps you found some sort of cinema sin here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because obviously, like, it, you know, it inspires Dawn to go to New York, which is something that both Steve and Brandon do as well. And there is there's something percolating here. And maybe it's related to what you were talking about, uh, Scott, with Salins' like, interest in like the darkness of, of the suburbs or something. But the idea of running away to New York of or of, you know, that being a place to not necessarily escape your problems, maybe like where your problems drive you to. I don't know. Like it feels like there's a a misconnection happening with the relationship between New Jersey and the city. And I feel like it breaks down with the Missy plotline, but I can like, I can kind of see like, like the faint impression of something that was supposed to go there. If that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I think if I put on my uh, cinematic justification hat, mm-hmm. the answer is that uh, the neighbor that kidnaps her took her tutu and dropped mm-hmm. it in Times Square in order to throw right. off any sense of pursuit, like yeah. deliberately put it somewhere where it would be found so people would be looking in the wrong place for her. Yeah, that, that would be my sense. guess. I, I don't know that there's like any reason to to believe that one way or the other. But as far as that like New York to New Jersey relationship, to some degree, it just kind of feels like when Dawn goes to New York, she finds herself in a much more adult world than she's ever been in. Because one of the things about the the New Jersey setting that that Salon's designs around her is that the adults feel like children too. You know, the the mom with that just that just incredibly petty. Dawn doesn't get dessert because she won't let me tear down her clubhouse. Dawn's getting her dessert split up between my other two children because she won't <laughs> let me tear down her clubhouse. Now my other two children are going to help me tear down her clubhouse. Like she is, she is a childish brat. The teacher that gets on Dawn's case about grade grubbing is just another mean girl. All of these, you know, Dawn's father, like just going to bed and whining and demanding to be taken care of is just another kid. And then you have characters like Steve and Brandon who are just so clearly pretending to be older than they are. And, and they feel like they're adults and they, 
act like the way they think adults do. Everything's just kind of topsy-turvy. And then you go to New York and it kind of feels like actual New York, where there are a lot of people there that are doing their own thing and, and have no time for your, you know, tired little whiny suburban BS. So we should acknowledge that this isn't the end of the Don Weider story. It continues in two other films taking different paths. The 2004 film Palindromes opens with Don Weider's funeral, uh, and we get some very sad details about her life, that, that she gained a lot of weight, she went to college, she killed herself, you know, um, oh, after, after being pregnant from a date rape. It's almost It almost felt like, I haven't seen this film in a while, but it almost felt like it was kind of you know, Stalin's taking it out on, on his most popular film, you know, just trying, trying to, to get rid of it in some, in some ways. Um, I remember liking palindromes. It's I remember being brutal in ways that mo- this movie isn't even, if you can believe that. And then his most recent film to date is, is, is Wiener Dog, which was a four part film, uh, following the progress of a, a small dachshund. Perhaps you should check it out, Genevieve. Um, <laughs> as a dachshund fan, uh, from 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 person to person, the, the second section is all about Don Wiener, and it's she's played by Greta Gerwig, who adopts this dog and reconnects by chance with Brandon, who's played by Kieran Culkin, and they end up going on a road trip. And I gotta say, I, I know we t- touched on it before, and you were a little uh, dismissive of it, but I found it kind of touching that he would you know there's so much more humanity in that segment as if you know especially compared to, to palindromes it's almost like he wanted to revisit this again and and give donna a better send-off it's not a mushy film by 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 any sense of the, of the imagination but there is uh you know moments of genuine connection there's a sense that these two characters have have grown up and not necessarily gotten past their 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 childhood, but but learned to deal with it. Um, I liked it. I actually liked liked Winter Dog quite a bit. I I hadn't seen it before watching it for this podcast. I don't know. I went back and revisited uh, just that segment of the movie because uh, a lot of the rest of the the movie I found very depressing in what it does to that uh, that poor dog and <laughs> what it implies about humanity. Which faith in humanity, maybe not Todd Zolens's like biggest stock and trade except for that segment <laughs> that segment is uh is has you know is his most humane it's work put it put that on the poster when you reissue wiener dog <laughs> it's most humane work to date <laughs> Keith Phipps, the next picture show <laughs> i think uh greta gerwig and kieran culkin do a really interesting job of sort of reproducing these roles uh as they existed in welcome to the dollhouse at an older age, but you know, still recognizably the same people with the same like physical habits and and vocal habits. You you really can believe that these are continuations of the same characters, uh, in spite of the way they've they've changed physically. But you know, then it comes back to these both still being very very awkward, uh, uncomfortable people who are still seeking affection in the most uncomfortable and awkward way possible. And I don't know, I, the, the idea that Dawn had, had gone off and gotten herself uh, pregnant and then committed suicide always seemed realistic to me, but also again, just piling on too much, just, you know, going too far, just ugliness for its own sake. I remember the first time I saw this movie thinking this movie's going to end with her killing herself. It's just, she she goes through too much and there's no Sorry, which, bright spot. Which movie? Welcome to the Dollhouse? Are we Sorry, yes. Welcome to the Dollhouse. Yeah. Uh, there's no bright spot in any of it for her. 
And so I'm, I mean, I'm glad that Wiener Dog gave her a better answer than that. Yeah, she's a, a veterinarian tech, apparently. She's an animal lover. She's got a little home of her own. And she makes that connection with with Brandon. But I don't know. I, I, I think one of the things that's maybe most interesting about the Welcome to the Dollhouse phenomenon is if you read almost any interview about it, and I, I read a bunch of them because I was very curious how Heather in particular looks back on this film. Uh, I just, I think a lot about Sarah Polly talking about her experiences on Baron Munchausen and how traumatized she was and how she didn't realize she could say no at the time. Heather Monterazzo is just so down to earth, I guess, as an adult. And like, she, she talks about this movie and, and Todd Zalons talks about this movie, like <laughs> almost as if she had directed it. Uh, she was apparently asked a lot at the time in interviews, like, what's it like to play such an ugly character? Which, as she said, just meant people were asking her, what is it like to be so ugly? And she's like, eh, it's a character. It's no big deal. And I'm, I'm glad that she can feel that way about it. But if you read pieces by just about anybody else, they will talk about how much they identify with a character. And Solenzis just talked about how like, very famous people have told her, have told him, uh, I was, I was Dawn. Like Cindy Crawford saw this movie and identified <laughs> with it and was like, I would, that's exactly what I was like. Hmm. And I just feel like the rawness and the pain of Welcome to the Dollhouse feels real in a way that has connected with a lot of people in terms of whether they had an experience, anything like this, or whether they had a family, anything like this, they've at least recognized some of the emotions. And in Wiener Dog, I don't really recognize any of the emotions. It just, it all feels very distanced and artificial and play-like to me. Can I give you one fun fact about the cast of this, of this film uh, from my own interview with, with, the, with Todd Solans? Sure. Uh, uh, Missy, uh, well, he talked about he talked about Heather Matarazzo being a professional actress, being like really good, and not him not really needing to do a lot of direction with her. But he had to do a lot of direction with Missy because Missy uh, is Ukrainian. <laughs> the girl was the girl was like six months out of for living in Ukraine and had an accent, and so he he had to basically kind of tell her often to say say her lines like he said it because <laughs> she did because wow. her, otherwise her accent would come through so there you go she's wow. also she's also a ballerina right like she's actually a very good dancer and like the scene where she's uh like kind of dancing across the lawn i, I was like I, I didn't know at that point that the uh, actress was a trained dancer even at that young age but like very good dancer. Yeah, I think that's probably why you go ahead. Why you go ahead and hire <laughs> yeah. the Ukrainian kid because they can they can do the dance stuff. Mm-hmm. The it's another uh, random piece of cast trivia. Heather Matarazzo uh, is queer and out and uh, in a, a long term committed relationship that she talks about a lot in interviews. She just seems incredibly happy. Yet at the same time, she's just very careful and talks about this too about not saying anything that would expose her partner to, you know, paparazzi or like investigation. Like she wants to keep her private life private, but she also wants the fact that she's gay and out to be out there. And given the amount of crap that people take in this movie uh, for potentially Mm -hmm. being queer, I, I just find that fun. 
you just said something that was positive and ended on the word fun. I think that's probably the best way to get out of this segment. Um, perhaps the only exit point where we'll, 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 we'll uh, you know, leave on a bright note. Uh, but we'll be talking more about Welcome to the Dollhouse in our second episode. We'll be bringing in to discuss alongside Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. Uh, we're going to take a short break. But we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion. And, you know, I don't know, junior high happy things and, and, and anything else <laughs> in the world of film uh email us at comments at next if you want to share any responses with us and other listeners or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730 we'll be back in a minute with some of that feedback from previous episodes Now it's time for feedback, but before we get into it, we want to shout out Film Spotty, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh's most recent episode discusses Bo is Afraid, and inspired by that discussion, features a list of the host's top five Joaquin Phoenix performances. I'm currently assuming that Space Camp's Max Graham tops both lists, but I'll have to listen to find out. As for our own podcast, uh, we're still getting feedback about our Before Sunrise and Rye Lane pairing, including a letter about how time might have change jesse and celine's story genevieve can you share that one sure although i'll point out that uh, all the feedback we've gotten has been about before sunrise with apologies to <laughs> but uh we'll it, get to it later it's just gonna be sitting there on on hulu yeah um but yes it's uh, super short people just just give yourself 80 minutes and watch it it's fun for sure uh but carrie writes about before sunrise I thoroughly enjoyed the discussion of one of my all-time favorite films since I first saw it as a 20-something in the 1990s. You observe the filmmaker's very smart decision to avoid cultural or topical references that would date the film. The one element that forever captures this story in the 20th century may have been too obvious to mention, but I'll bring it up anyway. Jesse talks about spending weeks on the train with nothing but his own thoughts to keep him company. His existential crises about reincarnation, etc., come to him while he's simply staring out the window. He's carrying a book around, but looking at a book is work, just as easy to put it down and stare. If you made this film today, Jesse would have podcasts, streaming media, and doom scrolling to keep him company. Making the effort to put the phone down and stare out the window would take conscious effort. Filling his brain with the detritus of other ideas would be the path of least resistance. And if Jesse did decide to eschew smartphones, you know he would tell us all about his reasons and that they would be more annoying than his window-staring thoughts. The decision at the end not to share contact info would feel more contrived in the age of social media, too. And they'd probably have to make a pact to put away their phones as they ramble the city in order to achieve the lovely aimlessness that makes this film great. But above all, it's Jesse's forced boredom that struck me as from another era. Amen. Yup. <laughs> I will say I will say that it it has become kind of a secret sort of almost fantasy element of certain films that I watched to uh, experience life vicariously back when we weren't as connected to everything. I mean, I I, I think about films like Days to Confused or Adventureland or things like that, where kind of young people, especially, are out on their own and, and nobody really knows where they are and doesn't have to know. And they're kind of free to to you know explore their their whims and desires and impulses at any moment. There's something just liberating about that to watch, and and of course liberating about that to experience. Of course, you know you take that you would of course take that for granted because because if you're a kid in the '70s or something, you're not you're not you're not thinking about you know how you could connect with the world via your telephone. But it is it is nice. It's just kind of nice to to have that sense of um, 
disconnection from the world and and uh it would be interesting to see you know what a what a 21st century before sunrise would be like and i guess it's impossible because people would uh you know fall in love in different ways i mean we did kind of see what a 21st century uh before sunrise would be like we kind of did a a direct uh yes I, i i think the fact that in rye lane the two characters are so interested in unpacking each other that they're not constantly pulling out their phones is kind of a fantasy element in and of itself uh, I, I think that this letter is very, like, wisely observed and very, very much accurate. I could easily see Jesse, like, delivering a little speech about, like, why he decided not to bring a phone or why he decides to keep his phone off or why he decided not to get a plan that would work across Europe why or whatever. Why he doesn't have social media. Why he doesn't have oh, he social media. Have social, he would be, yeah, like, totally not. not have social media. Yeah. <laughs> But but he would also have an ethos against it and like a little pre-prepared rant about it. Like he he would be one of those I don't even own a TV kind of people yeah. for sure. <laughs> you uh, need the David Cross character in that sketch where, where all he has is like a Victrola. <laughs> <laughs> Can he get social media on his Victrola? I mean, whether or not cell phones have been good for for life and for you and me and culture in general, it's probably too big a topic to debate, but I don't think it's been good for movies. You know, texting is not cinematic and, 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 you know, there are, they're not even recent ones. I just looked them up. There's, there's super cuts of, of moments in horror films where they, they had to establish that they have no signal. I think it's part of why, you know, maybe part of why horror films, you know, you get so many period horror films these days because it's just easier to have it set in an era where where this this is not even a possibility. Uh, I actually wrote about that. Like, I I did a big piece about that for The Verge when I was there that is still one of my favorite things that I wrote for them, in part because the the animated art uh, that somebody made for it, taken from The Shining and Jack Nicholson swinging his axe at at the door, uh, was animated over, so it's somebody swinging their axe through a cell phone. (laughs) Uh, But I feel like maybe Get Out was the, the last horror film to do something new with that uh I, I i can't i don't have signal or i don't have battery life or i forgot to bring my phone uh kind of thing by kind of lampshading it uh and making it very much part of the story that he's being gaslit about his phone and apart from that yeah it just it feels a little pro forma at this point and uh, does i think explain a lot about the the leanings towards retro horror stories but in this case, it's not a horror story. It's a mainstream love story where we would still have to explain why these people aren't looking things up on their phone or posting selfies of like, here's this really hot person that I'm roaming the city with. Like, let's let's put it on the gram. I'll throw out another uh, type of movie where I am very grateful when cell phones and social media are not an element, which is the two movies we're discussing. Movies about about children and bullying mm. and, uh, you know, junior high, high school, that whole phase of life, and particularly in, in stories where bullying is a factor. Like once you add social media to that, it becomes just a whole new level of story. And, uh, you know, to bring it back to our pairing here, uh, it's refreshing that neither of our protagonists for as much as they do have to deal with do not have to deal with that. Yeah, maybe yeah. this is this is probably we don't open this ourselves, but maybe throw it out to our, our listeners. Um, would Welcome to the Dollhouse be even more awful if it, was made, <laughs> if it, was, if it took place in, a, uh, in you know, 2023 versus 1995? 
Uh, you know, if it was said in 2023, there would be a whole sequence where Dawn put something on TikTok that she's done that she thinks is like fun dance, and cool. Her dance and we'll, to the song. Oh, that dance would be a <laughs> massive viral smash. Yeah. But then you, you would just have like a scroll down of the comments where she's being called a lesbo and a wiener dog and uh, mm-hmm. like watching her be crushed. I did Again, not necessarily very cinematic, relatable, and uh, possibly it would be a movie that, you know, people 20 years from now would be talking about, like, watching when they were in their uh, preteens and relating to really, really hard, but still difficult to watch. Well, any thoughts you have on that, let us know. We always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret, and maybe find out if God is there and wants to talk to Margaret. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of this podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at at nextpicturepod. If you want to keep track of when new episodes drop, it's Tuesday. Uh, Until next week, know that you will always be welcome to the special people club known as The Next Picture Show. 